Our sermon text today is Luke 23, verses 50 to 54. Christ has died. His lifeless body hangs from the cross. The question is, if you are a follower of Christ Jesus at that moment, what now? How is it that I should go about life in the face of this situation? Today's passage speaks to us about this by showing us one such believer in Christ, one such follower of Christ. Let's look at what Luke has to say to us, but before we do, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that we have been brought together to this place. We thank you for the music that we have sung and heard today as it has lifted us and our spirits up into your presence as we have read your word together, that word which is living and active, as we have prayed with one another, coming into your presence as you have beckoned us to only by your grace. And now we come to your word once more, and we pray that you would speak to us. Speak to us now in a way that we might not hear my words, but hear your words. Speak to us. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke 23, verses 50 to 54. This is the inspired word of God. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was the beginning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may have noticed the sermon title of our sermon today, not just an average Joe. The phrase, an, an average Joe, is, is a phrase that we have in English. It's an idiom. Other languages have similar idioms, but basically just refers to an ordinary person, an ordinary citizen, somebody who is just normal, not outstanding in any way, just an average Joe. But we read about somebody in today's text that I would argue is anything but an average Joe. Verse 50 says, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Now this town of Arimathea is a Jewish town. It, it, its modern location is unsure, although most 
Commentators seem to think it was possibly the town of Rentis, which is just north of Jerusalem. Likely it's, it's a city or a town somewhere near Jerusalem in the environs there. But really, which town it is in particular is kind of unimportant. The reason Luke tells us where he is from has not so much to do with that specific town, but rather to, to anchor what he is saying in time and in space. He, in essence, is saying that, that this isn't just some imaginary figure that I'm coming up with as a, a literary device to just further what I'm trying to say here. Rather, this is a real person with real flesh and blood who breathed real air, who wept real tears, who was actually there on this terrible day. He's a real man from a real place with flesh and blood and joys and sorrows and successes and failures just like you and me. And in that sense, I guess he is very ordinary. And his name, Joseph, was a very ordinary name. It's a name that, that was common in biblical times just as it is today. If we look through the pages of Scripture, we see all kinds of people with different variants of that name, just like we might have variants of it. You might know somebody called Joseph and another guy called Joe. Another guy called Joey. Somebody else goes by Jojo. These are all variants of the same name. And so, especially as we transliterate and translate from one language to another, we come up with different pronunciations and ways to say it. So we have Joseph, the, the son of, of Jacob, who, who had the coat of many colors, who rose to power in Egypt, we have Joseph, the father of Jesus, or so it was thought. We have Jos, who is one, one of the names that is listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3. We have Joseph, another person mentioned, one of the four brothers of Jesus. And another Joseph, who is the brother of James the Less. And yet another Joseph, who goes by Barnabas in Acts 4. You see this name is very common. It's an ordinary name, and so in that sense, perhaps he is just an ordinary person, but I maintain that this man that we look at, Joseph of Arimathea, is anything but an average Joe. And he's not an average Joe for a number of reasons. First off, because of the wealth and resources that were at his disposal. He was a, a wealthy man. We see this in the fact that he owned this tomb that had been hewn out of the rock, that that, that he wrapped Christ in a linen shroud, which would have been an expensive piece of material. He, he had the resources that enabled him to do these things, so he was not ordinary in that sense. He was also a man of position and influence. We read in verse 50 that he was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, that you'll recall had been the Jewish ruling elite that had ruled against Jesus in Mark 15, 43, we read, in fact, that Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. And we see that he had respect that went across cultural lines even because he, in our passage today, gains an audience with Pilate. Not everybody gets the opportunity to do this kind of thing. But, but all of these reasons are not the reason that I say he's not an average Joe. Because you might never be a person of great wealth and resources, although the 
the poorest of us are more wealthy than many of people who have lived throughout the world, throughout history, and even today. And you might never be a person of great position and influence, although every person with whom you have contact day by day, you have an opportunity to influence them and to touch their lives in a way that might change them. The reason that I think he is not an average Joe is because of the extraordinary faith that he shows. And even if we don't have great wealth and resources, even if we don't have great position and influence, every one of us can be a person of extraordinary faith like him. And we can become like this man who is not just an average Joe. We look at his faith, and it's a faith that is marked by courage. It is marked by devotion. And it's marked by action. I want to look at those three things today. First, his faith is marked by courage. In verse 50, as I said, it mentioned that he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. It says that he had not gone along with the flow. The council had made a decision that they must, must reject this Jesus. Furthermore, they must capture this Jesus. They must convict this Jesus. They must have this Jesus crucified, but he did not consent to this decision. He did not go along with it. He was other in his thought process. You know, it's, it's a lot easier, isn't it, to just go along with the flow. It's a lot easier when, when the whole group that you're in says, let's go this way, or let's do this thing, to just be okay, even if that's not what you know to be right. But Joseph of Arimathea shows courage in not just going with the flow, not just doing what everybody else says. If we are to be like this, then, then that will mean that we will face difficulties in life for sure because there will be times when, when taking a position that is contrary to culture will leave people angry with us. It will leave people against us. They might persecute us. They might even harm us. It takes courage. There are many areas in which we might have to stand against culture. Perhaps the most prevailing one in our day is the area of sexual ethics, where culture has all kinds of thoughts that are rapidly changing, that are rapidly rejecting a biblical understanding of sexuality, which says that a husband and a wife, man and woman, are the only context wherein sexual activity is to take place. It's the only place where it can be glorifying to God. Outside of that is a deviation from God's word, from his direction. Culture does not like this message. Culture rejects this message. If we are to stand firm in the truth, though, we're going to need courage. This may also mean, at times, taking 
unpopular steps even within your religious community, within your church, within your theological tradition. It might mean that you have to, to take a position that's different from where everybody else is going. Everybody might think about things one certain way, but as you look to the pages of Scripture, as you open up the Scripture and you read it and you study it and you, you pray through it, you meditate on it, you come to a, a different conclusion than, than the other people that you spend your time with, the other people even in your own church. This requires courage, and I would argue that you need to have the courage of your convictions. Now, now the flip side of this, of course, is that we need to allow for that. We need to give people room to have disagreement on those things that don't strike at the heart of our faith, those things that are around the periphery, those things that aren't the essentials of our faith. We need to disagree in a spirit of filial uh, gentleness, we speak the truth indeed. We don't ever let go of what we understand the truth to be. But we speak the truth in love with one another. And you know what will happen is sometimes as, as you speak the truth and I speak the truth as we know the truth to be, and those truths contradict, sometimes I'll come to see that you're right. <laughs> or you'll come to see that I'm right as the Holy Spirit is working through us. And so we need to be willing to share those truths as we see them with each other. We have to have courage to share those truths with each other. We can't just pretend we don't have any differences and hide them away. No, we should share them with one another. And as iron sharpens iron, we can sharpen one another. It takes courage. We need to be able to stand firm in the truth but stand firm in love. You know, we've got our Reformation Conference coming up next month. Uh, it's the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And uh, he posted that in the following days and weeks and months and years. He wrote on the things that he had posted there, and, and it wasn't popular within the church. They didn't like what he had to say, but he had to stand firm in his convictions. And they brought him before the authorities. And, and they said, even on, on penalty of death, that he needed to recant that which he had said. And what were Luther's famous words? I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. That needs to be our mindset. We'll stand in the truth. We'll take courage. Courage like Joseph of Arimathea. He had courage in verse 52 when he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Mark says it outright in his version. He said he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why was this so courageous? Well, first of all, because it wasn't the normal way things were done. When somebody was crucified, they had lost the right, according to Roman law, to a proper burial. When they were condemned to death, that was part of the penalty. They lose that right. Normally, their bodies were just left there. 
so that they might decay and decompose and that the beasts of the field, the birds and the beasts would come and, and just get rid of their bodies that way. No, but crucifixion took place on Golgotha, the place of the skull. Likely called that because of the skulls that were laying around there from people who had been crucified before. But Joseph makes a bold request. He comes to Pilate and says, can I have his body? Now it's bold, not just because it's out of the normal, but it's the kind of thing that would really be beneath a rich man of position like Joseph of Arimathea. Beneath him and and beyond that, it, it was something that would render him ceremonially unclean. And, and, and beyond that, Pilate didn't really like the Jews very much. So he had no expectation of him being receptive to his request. And, and it was going to cost him dearly, not just the financial cost of things, but, but he was a man of high repute. He was a man who was well-respected. And here he was, publicly identifying with a convicted criminal. been a member of the council that had with one voice condemned Jesus. And he had not given his consent, so it must have been at some time when he wasn't there. We don't know whether it was behind his back or whether he chose not to be there. Or we don't know what happened there, so we don't want to comment on that. But, but he had, up to that point, not given his agreement to it. So now he was coming out and publicly aligning, publicly identifying with Jesus. Why was he doing this? Well, he was moved by his devotion to Christ. That's the second thing we see in his faith, his devotion. You know, we, we want to have good theological understanding of things. We want to study God's word and understand the truth. We want to get to the bottom of things. We want to know God as he is, not just as we want him to to be in our minds. We want to know him as he wants to be known, as he has revealed himself to be to us. It's important that we get at the truth, but at the same time, we need to understand that when we study God's word, when we go to Bible study or Sunday school, when we come to church, when we do all of these things, it's not just an academic exercise that we're going through. It's not just a matter of, of get the data, put it in, and have that knowledge. We need to, at the same time, grow in our devotion to God as a result of what we learn. That is really the goal in the end, because if we only take in all this knowledge and we have all this knowledge, it does us no good if we do not have love in our heart toward God and toward others as a result. That's what Paul tells us, doesn't he? I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I'm but a resounding gong. I have all knowledge. We need to grow in our devotion to God. This doesn't mean that we necessarily like every detail of how things work out in our lives according to God's sovereign plan. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. Joseph certainly didn't enjoy being there at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying. And I'm sure he didn't enjoy taking Jesus down from the cross but he did know this. He belonged to Jesus. And Jesus belonged to him. 
And, and out of this relationship arose a fact that just couldn't be denied. He, he was a disciple of Jesus, and he could no longer be a secret disciple. Up to that point, John tells us in John 19, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he had not been open about his, his following of Christ, his devotion to Christ. But here, at this point, with Jesus now dead, he said, I, I must be public with it. My devotion must be made known, having seen the courage of Jesus as he went to his death, having come face to face with the price that Jesus paid, having, having seen the perfectly righteous Son of God hang on that cross and take upon himself the shame of his followers, the shame of Joseph, the shame of you and of me. Joseph knew he could no longer timidly hide in the shadows. He must make his devotion known. One commentator put it this way, it was not enough simply to protest this execution was unjust. Joseph realized that both logic and loyalty demanded that he confess his faith in the truth of Jesus' claim and publicly associate with Jesus. Now in this moment of profound humiliation, if he wanted to be owned by Christ at his exaltation, whenever and however that exaltation should be brought about. Brothers and sisters, logic and loyalty demand that we too confess our faith in the truth of Jesus' claims. If we trust in him, we must identify with him. People shouldn't just notice the family resemblance and say, you look kind of familiar. But I can't place it. No. They must know the family to whom we belong is the family of God, with Christ Jesus, our older brother, our devotion to him being firm. Do you identify with Jesus in any and all situations? No matter what comes your way? You know, it's really easy here at church. I, I ask, let's take a poll. Who identifies with Jesus? And everybody can raise their hand. And it's welcoming and it's kind and we're all happy. Sometimes, certainly in the past, it's been culturally appropriate, culturally encouraged, to represent as a Christian. Less and less that's the case, and less and less it will become the case. And you will need to decide, will I identify with Jesus even when it's not to my benefit? Will I identify with Jesus when it's costly? Will I identify with Jesus when I'm Andrew Brunson in a Turkish prison for a year because he preaches the gospel. Will I identify with Jesus when I'm like so many folks who are mentioned in the literature on our free table from Voice of the Martyrs? I would recommend to you all to stop by and pick up some of that literature. Read the stories. Hear about the things that these people endure and have your faith and your courage and your devotion to Christ strengthened by the example of others who have gone faithfully even to the death because they are devoted to Christ. Will you believe in Christ? Will you trust in Christ? Will you be devoted to Christ even when it isn't advantageous to do so? 
It's not just about what you believe. It's not just what's in your head and even what's in your heart. It's also about what's in your hands, right? Your head, your heart, your hands, what you think, what you feel and believe and, and what you do. It comes down to the end that, that Joseph's faith is the faith that wasn't just a matter of courage. It wasn't just a matter of devotion. It was a matter of action. And so should ours be. You know, we're saved by grace through faith alone, it is said, but the faith that saves is never alone. It, it must be a faith that acts. Faith without works, James tells us, is dead. And James was a man, or Joseph was a man of action. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body in verse 52. That was an action. We talked about that. Then he took him down in verse 53 and wrapped him in a linen shroud. It's action. Don't, don't gloss over this. It, it's easy as we're reading to say, well, yeah, he took him down and wrapped him up and put him in the tomb. And, but, but put yourself in his place. Think about it. We're told by John that Nicodemus was with him as well, and, and, and they did this together. But, but think about it. They took Jesus down from the cross. Jesus' lifeless body, nailed to the cross. They had to remove the spikes. Spikes had to be pulled out of the wood and pulled out of the arms and feet of their Savior. His mangled, bloodied, lifeless body there. And still, as they took him, having removed him from the cross and wrapped him in the, the shroud, it, it had weight to it. it. It was real. It was there. They, they had to lift him and, and, and roll him and turn him and, and then pick him up and, and carry him together. We don't know how far it was, whether it was just a hundred yards away or a half mile away or further. We don't know, but we know they took him to the tomb and they placed him there in this tomb, verse 53, cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. A new tomb, a tomb untouched as of yet by the corruption of death. Joseph's own tomb, we're told. It's interesting, Jesus wasn't buried in a tomb of his own. Interesting, because remember the birth narrative of Jesus back in Luke 2? When Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The manger we normally think of as being in a stable. Early church fathers actually said that it was in a cave. That's where it would have been. Picture baby Jesus wrapped in cloths, laid in a cave, in a place that was not his own. And at the end of his life, now once more, wrapped in cloths, laid in a cave, in a place that is not his own, there because Joseph had prepared for death. Joseph had prepared for death. He had gotten ready for it because because he knew he would one day die, and so he had a tomb prepared for himself, but now he is not laying in this tomb, but Jesus is laying in this tomb in Joseph's place. And we too must prepare for death, because each one of us will die. Each one of us will come to a place where our breath is no more, 
where our heart is no longer beating. It may be 50 years from now. It may be 70 years from now. For some of you young ones, it may be 90 years from now. Or it might be today. And we do not know. And you cannot be sure you need to prepare for death. And just like Joseph, if you have prepared for death, there is the possibility that Jesus might be there in your place. So prepare for it by trusting in the one who can pay for your sins. Prepare for death by realizing that after death comes the judgment. And each one of us stands convicted in our sins if we try to stand on our own merits, on our own good deeds. But if we stand in the grace and glory and righteousness of Christ Jesus who died for our sins, then our salvation is secure. If only he is in our place. One more connection I want to make in closing. You know, our Unison Scripture reading at the beginning of the ser- earlier in the service, we mentioned Simeon, and I thought it was interesting how there was a man, Simeon, who was just and devout, or the ESV says righteous, and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation, you know, when I think of, of when you lose in the first round of a tournament, you might go into the consolation bracket, you know, because you lost and it's really bad, but we're going to try to make things better. That's what consolation is. <clears throat> is the bringing of light into darkness, of order into chaos, of perfection into corruption. What is the consolation of Israel that he's waiting for but Christ Jesus? Christ Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. And so now we see another man at the end of Jesus' life, after seeing Simeon at the beginning, a good and righteous man looking for the kingdom of God. Another man, these two men, bookend the life of Christ, one at the beginning, one at the end, and they're both looking for the same thing, and they're looking for what we should be looking for too. Looking for Christ, that we might all live a life filled with a faith marked by courage, marked by devotion, and marked by action. But don't just be motivated by Simeon and by Joseph. (laughs) Be motivated by Christ, for he lived the perfect life, the life of perfect courage, the life of perfect devotion, the life of perfect action. He left his father's throne above so free so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and fled for adam's helpless race his mercy all immense and free for oh my god found out me amazing love how can it be that thou my god didst die Lord, truly is amazing love that you have shown. And as a result, we need not fear condemnation, but rather can rejoice in the light of your love. So we rise now, we follow you wherever you would lead. Give us the courage, give us the devotion, that we might in our every action glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.